Welcome to EcoRine News' EcoTalk podcast, recorded at an AS220 studio in downtown Providence. I'm Frank Carini, editor and co-founder of the Rhode Island-based online environmental news organization, EcoRine News. I'm joined, as always, by contributor Nicholas Boak. Nicholas? Hi, Frank. Good to see you. Glad to be here. We're happy to have you. This monthly podcast is made possible by our venture partner, Dan Levinson of Main Street Resources. Today, we'll be discussing the environmental impact of naval military exercises planned for the next five years up and down the East Coast. These exercises will feature active sonar and live weaponry. We want to ask our guests, what is the impact on marine mammals and other sea life on habitats and ecosystems? Joining Nick and I today are Bob Keeney and Gene Nyson. Bob is a marine research scientist at the University of Rhode Island. Gene is a senior analyst for the Environmental Impact Statement of Training and Testing in the Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico. Uh, Bob and Gene, thanks for coming up. Bob, by train from Narragansett and Gene by airplane from Norfolk, so we appreciate that. Norfolk, Virginia, not Mass. And this, as we were telling you a little bit before we came on air here taping, we were going to do renewable energy on this particular podcast, but when our colleague Tim Faulkner wrote about the military uh, exercises coming up, our Facebook page blew up. We had like tons and tons of hits on the on the story. So we're like, hey, you know what? We just do a podcast on this. There was a little confusion on everybody's part about where you saw this and what's going on. So you guys, thanks for coming here. You're experts in the field of how it's going to, what, what we care about, at least the readers of EcoRI, how it impacts, you know, marine mammals, sea life. The first question, it's the biggest question. Gene, what, what is the impact? So what we've looked at is we've analyzed the training and testing activities the Navy is conducting off the East Coast and in the Gulf of Mexico. There's the same type of activities we've been conducting for decades out there that involve uh, ship transits, it involves using active sonar, involves using live ordnance. So we look at all the potential effects that can happen from those types of activities, and we analyze it through a based on what the best available science tells us. So we've looked at this. This is our third time that we've done this for these types of training and testing activities. And the analysis supports that we're not having a significant impact on marine life. Uh, we are affecting animals that they will react to some of the activities that we do that, especially the ones that introduce sound into the water, everywhere from they'll have a startle response or, or basically acknowledge or turn their head that there's a sound in the water to in some cases, that the animals may leave the area during that training activity. How do you, how do you do that? You guys, you watch them underwater? Do you take them out of the water and study them? How do you? It's based on a lot of uh, research that has been done, especially over the last 10 to 15 years. We we and the scientific community have probably learned more about how sound affects different marine species over the last 15 years and probably the 30 years before that because there's been a concerted effort with that by the Navy, different research institutions, different uh um, academic institutions, and, and the Navy has been a, a large supporter of that research with over $300 million over the last 10 years that we've, that we've contributed to understanding that. So different types of experiments that have taken place with where we've actually put what are called tags or, or digital tags on animals that can measure the sound level that the animal receives as well as it, it collects a 3D track of, of the animal. So it's core speed and depth on how it responds to different types of sound. And then we look at how those animals react, and then we build uh, – we, we take from those sound levels 
And then we build a, in, that into a model. So the different sound levels that an animal receives and how it reacts, we put that into a model and then model our different types of sound producing activities in the water. And that's how we get an estimate of what we think the animals are going to do. So when you've got something like in your in the environmental impact statement, the uh, explosive sound, uh, sound sono buoys uh, will affect marine mammals and sea turtles within 600 yards and ex- uh, explosive torpedoes within 2,100 yards. That's uh, you're not just flipping coins there. This is based on, on this is right. This is based on the science that has been done. So for explosives in uh, particular, there's uh, hasn't been any real recent acti- uh, studies, but there have been studies in the past where they've taken uh, not necessarily marine species but terrestrial species and uh, and then subjected them to different size different sizes of explosions and then measured how those explosions. Uh, uh, affected the animals themselves. So either a physical change, a uh, lot of times we've done with cadaver animals, or we've also done some studies of, of with regards to fish in particular, of how the fish are reacting to those different sounds for, for the explosives. And then for sonar, it's based on, again, those re- uh, what are called behavioral response studies that I discussed earlier, as well as using captive animals to measure what they can hear, so the their hearing range, and then also with regards to any type of physiological effects, so any chance of uh, temporary or permanent um, loss of hearing sensitivity, those types of measurements are done on captive animals. So we collect all that data, and so we have a, a, a fair understanding of uh, from both a physiological and a reaction standpoint on what we think the animals are going to do. And is this in keeping with the findings of your area of research, which isn't exactly the same, but how does it, what's going on here match well, with the Navy's own? not the only group out there doing research. Yeah. They rely on what's been published in the literature before them. So a lot of the, the work on like hearing sensitivity, you can do a hearing test on a marine mammal the same way a person gets it done when they go to the doctor. And you can say, their hearing is most sensitive at these frequencies and at these frequencies, they can't hear anything. And so, you know what's going to impact them the most. What's What animals, I mean, it's, probably, it's a hard question because there's so many different frequencies, but for this for this particular exercise, is what, are the, what marine mammals are the ones that are the most sensitive to kind of sonar or ordinances that might be used in well, training? Explosions are broadband noise, so that includes all the, the whole range of frequencies all, all right. at once. So they can affect anything. Uh, things that make low frequency sound like ship noise, the whales that are most sensitive to those are the baleen whales, the ones that actually make low frequency sound. Their hearing is down at the low end. Some things have hearing that's way up at the high end. Dolphins and harbor porpoises and beaked whales, they make sounds that are so high that we can't even hear them. So when you hear, as a, as a non-Navy guy, you know, as a researcher in the field, when you hear about what's going to be happening uh, off the coast here, these exercises, and read what's been said, you okay with it? I mean, this is your field of… of um, oh, it's not just my field. I also work for a contractor who does monitoring of Navy exercises, uh-huh. who's been doing that since 2010. Uh-huh. And… The biggest part of my job is technical editor of every report that comes out and goes to the Navy. So I read and review all those reports, and I have to make sure that the science in them is solid. And you're comfortable I'm with comfortable what's going with on. So, yeah. so the hue and cry over something like this from 
both your standpoints is, well, obviously stuff happens, but um, I mean, am I oversimplifying to say, but we're doing our best and it seems to – the impact seems to be minimal? I mean, I, I don't mean to put words no. in your mouth. From just my point of view, public. from my point of view, the Navy is going above and beyond in what they do to, to make sure they're doing the job right. And, you know, as part of what we do, and you're talking about trying to minimize the effects, and, and we do that. We have what we what are called mitigation measures, trying to reduce the types of impacts that we may have. We've had those in place since 2005. So if if we're used, for example, if we're using sonar and we see animals within a specific range, and it depends on the type of sonar, but we'll either reduce the power of that sonar or we'll secure the sonar system. Or if we're doing a live ordinance training activity or testing activity, and we see animals in the area we want to do it, then we'll wait for those animals to leave that area or we'll move to a different area to conduct that training or testing event. Again, we want to make sure that we don't that we're not causing any unnecessary impacts. This is obviously a very expensive undertaking. I mean, not just the war games or whatever you want to call them. It's just routine training. Yeah, right. I understand that. Okay, but but not just that, but but just the 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 studies. The, you're having to come up here. You know, all all these things. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's the, ex- the most most expensive part of the. Well, but it's I mean, actually pretty cheap for me yeah, to come I up understand, here today. But, so. but, but I'm just I'm just saying it all adds up. Yes, it does. And. Um, so I, I'm looking at, at at sort of the the current state of the budget, and I mean, you know, the Navy's down from 600 ships to 200 or 300, whatever it is, or something like that, and and you know, everything's up in the air now. I mean, when you look three or four years from now at the at the money available to do something like this, particularly since it's an environmental issue, which does not seem to be you know high on the list of priorities of the current administration, is are you guys are you guys going to get beat on sometime soon. I don't think so. And I think there's a misinterpretation of, of, you know, from the military's perspective on how important environmental compliance is. You know, 50 years ago, probably not so much because no, we not. didn't understand as right, much. Right, right, right. Yeah. But in today's environment that we've been working in, and this is my third administration, you know, that yeah. I've been doing this, that, uh, you know, it, it's always received a fairly high level of support, both uh, from leadership uh-huh. themselves as well as as fiscally. And, you know, the Navy understands how important it is to to make sure that we're not out there damaging the environment. I mean, okay. we really do. You know, we've always got to look at better ways and smarter ways to do things because, yeah. you know, there is, I don't know, necessarily cuts, but you're not going to get any bumps in your in your funding. So, no, uh-uh. you know, you, we have to look at how we can do things smarter, and and we're doing that. And, yeah, and right. you know, the forecast is we'll be able to continue to do the monitoring that, that Bob talked about, and we'll be able to continue to do these environmental studies to make sure that uh, we fully assess what the potential effects are and make and get that word out to the public. The dollar value of the all the environmental compliance work looks big. Until you compare it to the operational oh, side, right. it's still yeah. dropping the bucket. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but it does have to do with priorities, and there are the internal priorities that you're talking about, and right. then there are the broader priorities. And the draft budget that was submitted by the White House in the spring proposed to completely eliminate the Marine Mammal Commission, and the Marine Mammal Commission is the federal agency that's responsible for being the conscience of the federal government and make sure they follow the rules every place else. 
And the agency, the, the commission, put out an email to all of its, its subscribers saying that their budget works out to like a dime for every citizen. Right, 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 right. Yeah, well, we're in different times. NEH, I mean, all these, everything, you know, it's all the, the, the things that are getting, never mind. Okay. We also took some questions on social media. And one question specifically was, are these military exercises more disruptive or less disruptive than, say, an offshore? We only have one in the United States, and only five of them off Block Island, but like a wind farm. What you know, she was, she's concerned about the Block Island wind farm and that. How much noise does that make? And obviously, we don't have many in our coast, but there's plenty in, in well, Europe. There, there has been some monitoring now that's been done on the Block Island turbines, and they actually are putting out lower levels of sound than they were predicted to at the beginning. Huh. So, what was originally predicted to be the source level is what they're measuring 50 and 100 meters away. Huh. So basically, if you get more than 100 meters away from the turbine, the, the noise of the operating wind generator is below the background and, and the, nobody can hear it. And the whales you mentioned, they're not, is there many, the, what whale was it that's the low sonar? All the baleen whales. Yes, baleen. they're not even in this area. Are they that much? Are they, depends are on they? the season. Depends on the season. Yeah. Right whales. Right. It looks like right whales pretty much migrate past here on their way north in the spring. So if you're going to see right whales in Rhode Island Sound, it tends to be in April. And every once in a while, we get a big bunch of them. In 2010, I think it was, there were 100 of them out there on one day. And that's a fifth of the population. Wow. So as part of the analysis that we do in the, in the modeling that I discussed earlier, we look at the marine mammal densities and the marine mammal abundance. So basically, how many animals are in a specific area at a specific time? We're doing that. And that, that's based on, uh, again, the science that from survey data and, uh, and then modeling uh, habitats to predict where animals may be. So, yes, we take that into account when we do our analysis. And with our training, you know, some exercises can last. Uh, two to three weeks long, but at during that those three weeks, we're not putting sound in the water the whole time. So the majority, the vast majority of our activities that do put sound in the water are on the order of magnitude of of a few minutes for for using ordnance or explosives to a, you know a few hours where we'd use sonar, and that's it. So and again, that's done. It's a short period of time over a very defined uh, geographic area, and then there's no more sound put in the water. So it's, it's very temporary and transient. This is probably a question you can't answer, but um, I think you're, you you take comments and questions by, I suppose, email and letters, et cetera, until the end of this month, I believe. Do you get stuff of substance I, it from that kind of thing, or is it – do you just get sort of panicked – Oh my God! What are you doing to my to my marine life out here? Do you do you get some stuff that helps you with this? Yeah, that's the whole purpose of the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA process, and that's what we're involved in with the environmental impact statement. And that's you know it's good for the public to provide us their feedback, and and we do get a lot of good feedback on uh, the analysis that we do, that we have uh, completed, and we also get some good suggestions on you know, we may have missed a study or. Um, we may not have explained something clearly, so we get those those kinds of comments in, and it helps us go back and and, and strengthen our analysis and and uh, clarify things in the final EIS that we'll put out, uh, you know, in the middle to late next year. So it's really good through that NEPA process to be able to get those comments back, and it helps us provide a better analysis 
uh, for the public and to help us better understand what the potential effects could be. So actually, people ask us all the time, do they make changes? What do you think they do with the information? I'm like, I don't know. I don't work for the Navy. I don't work for this company. So yes, you do. Some oh, you, can you go, act on. Absolutely. You can, you can go into the Federal Register every time there's a final rule come out and there'll be pages and pages and pages of, we got 16 public comments on this topic. Here's the response that they're all responded to, even if they're inane. We got 57 postcards, all the same, that were sent out because such and such an NGO sent this to all their members and said, comment. And they only have to reply to that once. And, and you've been involved in studying the studies uh, for since, I guess you said, since 2010. Uh, some major improvements that you can see in the way the Navy's going about doing this? There was a big change in the middle of the process. Originally, the requirements, and it wasn't the Navy that did it, it was the, the federal agency that issues the requirements for what they're monitoring said was you needed to do this many days of shipboard surveys and this many hours of aerial surveys, and it was just a checkbox thing. That's how the monitoring was deemed to be effective if they met the, the numbers. Then they decided that that was not good science, and they switched to the monitoring studies now focus on scientific questions. What is the effect? You know, if, you, if you do this particular activity and you chase dolphins out of an area, do they come back? If they do come back, is there any long-term effect on the population or isn't there? And it's, it's, some of those things are really hard questions to answer, but at least the questions are being asked now. And speaking of public feedback, this has to go back July 19th. We got a lot of people didn't like the setup. Of, they thought it was going to be like a public meeting or a public hearing, and it was more of a, you went around and talked to people individually. Some people liked it. Some people didn't. Why? Why that format, or why that? We've we've done both formats in the past, and we have found that with the information meeting, the open house type meeting that we had, that we're able to interact with a lot more of the public, and we're able to answer a lot more questions. And it provides more time. You know, that four hour window provided more time for people to come and and attend the public meeting. If you have a hearing, you could do it, but there's a set time that that hearing has to take place and it limits the amount of time that we get to interact with the public and provide them, you know, the information on what we've done and be able to answer those questions and be able to interact on a one-on-one -on -one basis so that we can try to, to help explain what we're doing and why we're doing it. You do know that one way of looking at it from the outside is when it's go around and, and talk to the people at the booths, it looks as though it's an effort to avoid, you know, that sort of public forum where where the guy who's really got an axe to grind gets at the microphone and hammers at you. Riles up the crowd. Kind of yeah, and right. I can understand that perception. But again, like I said, we've done this both ways. Yeah. We've got a lot more positive feedback on on the open house method because for the reasons that I said, yeah. it, we're able to interact with a lot more of the public and we're able to have a, a more in-depth discussions for people that that have concerns so that we can help address those and answer those and provide the information that they're looking for. I think sometimes people aren't familiar with what we've done in the past. So when we have to renew these permits every five years, the Marine Mountain Protection Act, your permits are only good for five years. So we are, this is our third time through this process, but maybe folks didn't hear about it in the past. So they think this is new. Yeah. And in reality, this again, as Bob said, and I've said, it's just a renewal of those permits. 
And it's the same type of training and testing that we've been doing for decades. So, you know, a point I like to make is if you haven't noticed anything over the last 30 years, you're not going to notice anything different from what is in this environmental impact statement. We had another a Facebook, this is a Facebook question. It has, really hasn't, it wasn't about the environment, but this particular user wanted to know, can, you, can some of this be done with uh, simulation rather than, you know, active things? Or has it think like, she just want to know, like, with cyber, cyber terror being a more of a thing? And how would, how is, I guess her question was, how is military operations changed with better technology? We do use simulation as part of our training. Uh, you know, fuel is expensive. Time is expensive. Getting ships underway and putting airplanes in the air is expensive on the, on those uh, platforms because it puts wear and tear on them. So we use modeling or we use simulation as often as we can, but it only provides a certain level of training. There's nothing that can replicate actually flying an airplane or driving a ship or chasing a submarine in the in the ocean in the environments that you're going to be operating in. Because simulation can only do so much. And an analogy I like to use is an airline pilot. You know, they fly, they train on simulators a lot, but they also got to train flying real planes. I don't think anybody would ever want a pilot that's only flown in a simulator to fly them for the first time across country. So that that realism of, of actually getting ships underway and and operating at sea can't be replicated in a simulator. And that would address, I think, maybe the other comments of cybersecurity or cyber terrorism. You know, the military is in, involved in trying to uh, defeat that and and prevent that from happening. But that's you know that's in a virtual world or or in the ether world. But there are still bad guys out there, and you still have to put you know as they say boots on the ground to be able to go out and uh, defend against those bad guys. And that's what we get out of this training. What what you guys are doing though? The, I mean, this process is not at all. It doesn't sound like it's at all related to what the Seventh Fleet is going on. You know, is bumping into um uh, to. Commercial ships and stuff like that. This is a whole different ball of wax here, or is there a connection? It, it all it all comes together. Again, it comes from you know being able to drive ships at sea. You got to go to sea and drive those ships, so you understand how they operate and the different. You know, we train a lot of uh, you know our sailors in ship driving simulators, so we use that so they can get some experience and get a better understanding of how ships would maneuver in the real world. But actually going out and doing that. Again, it comes back to you have to do real training. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's my last question. It's not specific to the military, but you guys are experts in this field. How much underwater noise is there and how big of a problem is it, it is? I mean, from all sources, not just military exercises. The biggest source of underwater noise that's out there is noise from ships. You can compare the overall background level of noise in the Northern Hemisphere to the Southern Hemisphere, where there are many fewer ships. And it's many times louder in the north. And it's every place. It's not just a single source. There's there's loud noise everywhere from ship propellers. And how, how do we even know how much of an I mean it's having an impact, obviously, but how there are scientists who think that that it's reducing the distance at which marine mammals that use sound to communicate can communicate. It's reducing their acoustic space is what they're what they're calling it. Is that having to do with like Beach whales that you see, or I mean, this could be many factors from why it's on the East Coast. Beached whales, whales have been beaching since before ships were in the water, <laughs> since the Stone Age. Yeah, <laughs> there's a, if you drive out from here to, to Provincetown on Cape Cod, when you get to Wellfleet, 
you get to a spot where there's a big salt marsh off to your left as you're heading north, and you'll see a sign that says Blackfish Creek. Blackfish is an old name for pilot whales. That's where pilot whales get stranded in the mudflats now. That name goes back to the, to the 17th century. So it happened then the Indians used to, the, the natives who lived out there would harvest pilot whales when those strandings happened. So it's, it's not due to sonar. It's not due to anything that, that happened in the 20th century. Nick, you have any more questions? No, we... this has been very, very informative. No, we though. appreciate you, you guys much. both yeah, coming yeah, up yeah. and it's a good conversation. Thank you yeah. for coming. Are you hopping a plane back today? Yes. Wow. Well, thank you for coming. You're welcome. You're welcome. And now it's time for Take Two, the part of our podcast where Frank and I share some reflections about what's going on in the news these days. Like most of you, I had a good time watching the moon cross the face of the sun in late August. I must be getting old, though. I didn't find myself cheering the moon as though it were a running back making a break for the end zone. I was just quietly astounded. Some other people, however, weren't out there scanning the skies with their special glasses and colanders. They were in their offices, watching to see what the midday blacking out of the sun would do to the power grid. The results were comforting. Frank, on the other hand, isn't focusing on astronomy or electricity. His concerns are larger. He's worried that we Americans may be tipping over into some unimaginable deep end, where the values that we thought we shared seem to be imploding. He's worried that some of us don't seem to be willing to call out neo-Nazis and white supremacists to say nothing of the fact that environmental regulations, even the very idea of environmental regulations, may be in jeopardy. But it's more than that. Frank's wondering where all this hatred will take us. Well, here's my take. Everybody sure seemed to enjoy the recent eclipse. Every news clip and YouTube posting I saw was filled with cheerful, even ecstatic sun and moon watchers, ooing and eyeing as our satellite crossed in front of our star, turning day briefly into night. But as the Washington Post told us the next day, this event provided us with more than a titillating few minutes in which we were reminded of where we actually live and what's actually going on in our cosmic neighborhood. Post reporter Dino Grandoni explained that the event helped us get some sense of the vulnerabilities we face as we shift toward alternative energy sources like solar and wind power. From one end of the country to the other, while most of us were out gawking at the skies, the people responsible for providing our power were watching the dials. The question was, would the eclipse threaten the amount of power available to us? This was of special interest in California, where nearly 10% of the state's energy comes from solar, and North Carolina, which is second only to California in the solar-generated percentage of its energy. The result? While both states had backup energy sources at the ready, both systems held their own, with the dip in available energy not causing any real problems in these or any other states. I'm comforted by these findings for two reasons. First, I'm always comforted to hear that there are still people in positions of authority in this country who are interested in real information and are willing to go to the trouble of gathering such information. Second, this is quite a difference from what's going on in the U.S. Department of Energy under the Trump administration. 
It just issued a study that will, one assumes, be used to justify cutbacks in support of alternative energy sources while recommending increased support for fossil fuels like coal. As Thomas Pyle, the president of the Institute for Energy Research and a member of Trump's transition team for energy puts it, quote, as the utility sector prepares for the short-term impact of a solar eclipse, a much larger problem looms for solar advocates, the diminishing value of intermittent solar as a reliable source of energy, unquote. Well, I guess he and the DOE people, whose report was just released about power grid reliability may be disappointed by the way the grid held up during the recent eclipse. Though we can be sure they'll be looking to shift the nation's focus from alternatives to nuclear and coal. Sure, there's more to be learned about our vulnerabilities. And sure, nothing's ever as simple as we'd like it to be. But this little beta test of our power grid bodes well for the future. I guess some will call it fake news, counting on the poorly educated whom our equally poorly educated president says he loves so much, to accept yet another load of hogwash from their increasingly desperate hero. But it's good news, and that can be a rarity these days. This is my take. Again, it's depressing and uh, sad, but that's, I guess, my feelings at the moment. We're in a bad place, and we can't even agree that neo-Nazis and white supremacists are not very fine people. The country, though, isn't being divided by Democrats versus Republicans or conservatives versus liberals. It's being led backwards by disrespect of knowledge and truth. It's become fashionable to embrace ignorance and mock critical thinking. The debate, I'm using finger quotes, over climate change, global warming, accepted science perfectly illustrates this point. You don't need a high school diploma to be a critical thinker. A PhD doesn't shield you from ignorance. Lying doesn't make you the best and alternative facts are fake. We're quickly descending a slippery slope that will end with a belly flop in the D.C. swamp. A rising tide of broken ideology propped up by greed and vindictiveness has created an ever-expanding fault line. We're fractured and fracked. The West is literally burning and much of the rest of the country is drowning. Environmental protections are being chainsawed. Social safety net is being torn apart. And our bedrock public education system, long under siege, has been put up for sale. All this is being done in the interest of industry and individual profit. We're distracted by crowd sizes and entertained by juvenile tweets. We applaud or hiss when a politician changes his or her party affiliation, excited that it could make or break a filibuster. We're quick to label someone as both a communist and socialist. Our infatuation with ignorance blinds us to the fact that two philosophies have some very stark differences. We throw around labels such as white trash and thug to disparage anyone we don't agree with or like. We call whole groups of people rapists, murderers, and druggies. The only people we're slow to label are those carrying torches and chanting Jews will not replace us in blood and soil. All this hate and ignorance is getting most of us nowhere. All it's doing is getting unqualified people elected and further concentrating wealth and power. We need to open our minds and hearts. Nick, what did you think of the uh, conversation with Gene and Bob? Well, I was I was pleasantly surprised. I think I thought, uh, and this is the 
the skeptic in me, I think I thought that there would be sort of more cover up and more, oh, well, you know, uh, it's no big deal. And our figure, the, the figures are the figures. But I found it, I found it very interesting, the depths into which they were able to go, the way they described going about um, arriving at their conclusions and, you know, the way they've been modifying uh, the way they study the, the issue, the problem, obviously uh, taking it, taking the environmental impact of such uh, naval exercises very seriously. And, and that comforted me. You feel better now? Yeah, I feel better. That's good. I mean, I, I came in, I, I think the military or at least the Navy does a, you know, a good job with, they do fun research, you know, they do a lot with the environment, but you know, it's just, we, we just treat the ocean so poorly. And I don't just mean the military or the Navy or even the U.S. In fact, the U.S. maybe treats it a little bit better than other countries, but we're putting so much stress on the oceans and all the undersea water noise, I mean, under the water noise and uh, all the pollutions. It's it's just tough to take, even though it's a military exercise. And you're right, you do have to train. I don't want to be the pilot in the plane with the pilot who only had simulation training. I don't want to be that passenger. So I understand that, but I wish we just treated the oceans better, not just from a military standpoint, from overall standpoint. Well, his comment that the greatest harm is caused by just commercial shipping. I found that fascinating. And of course, the the noisier uh, uh, northern oceans versus the southern oceans makes perfect sense. So it's the overconsumption. Over consumption. It's, it? it's you and me getting, making sure we've got inexpensive shoes coming exactly. over here. That's, we're complicit. Exactly. Well, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next month.